0: So, um, as we start today, uh, I want us to look together at the book of Second Samuel. That's right, Second Samuel. Surprise, surprise! Chapter seven. As we talk together today about the promise of a better son, the promise of a better son. And as you reach that place in the scriptures with me, I want to, I want to invite you to join me in standing as we have the opportunity, the privilege to read the words of the king. Second Samuel seven verses 14 and 15 says, I will be his father. And he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's thank him for it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. Lord, we gather in the name of your Son, and we gather to feast. You have spread this feast before us so beautifully of your word. We have seen it uh, in Romans, we've seen it uh, in Psalms, we've seen it in other places as well. We thank you for your word, because your, your word says about itself that it is sweeter than honey from the comb so, Lord, we gather to feast on your word this morning. We gather, Lord, to be reminded that you have provided all things for your children in Christ. That you have given us the gift of faith that we might look to Jesus and not to ourselves. And so, Lord, would you continue to increase and cause our love to abound. And, Father, I do ask that you would help us to better understand that it is not long from now. That your son will return and make all things new. So would you empower us from your word through the preaching of your word today. That we would live in light of that glorious truth. And we ask it in the precious name of your son. The name of King Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're with us for the first time this morning, uh, we're, you're jumping into what's really been a series within a series, right? We're marching through Second Samuel together, of course, but we've, we've kind of we've stopped to do this micro series on Second Samuel chapters 7 and 8. Three weeks ago, we began by opening up Second Samuel 7 and seeing at the outset that this chapter communicates, broadly speaking, that God is more faithful than we think. And therefore, we should be more confident in him than we are. The last couple of weeks, we've seen reasons for that. We, two weeks ago, we saw that God promised from the very beginning, land. See if you can finish the statement. Land, seed, and crickets. Blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. Right, We've seen that as far as the curse is found, he has promised um, that, uh, that what was done through Adam's fall would be undone by the sending of the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Or as he made the promise to Abraham that his seed would become the source of a, a blessing to every family on the earth, to all the peoples on the earth. Last week we saw uh, that w- what we read here in Second Samuel chapter 7 is precisely because that from the very beginning, God's promise prevails. Right, God's promise prevails. Where God's, uh, where God's people fail, God's promise never fails. It prevails. And so it continues to move this redemptive story forward throughout the Bible. And this morning we begin to consider that this promise gets even better. It gets even better. So we have this promise given in the Old Testament. And there is a sense in which we are we, what we receive, when we receive this promise in Christ what we receive is really a better promise, a better promise. What I want you to know this morning is the reason it's a better promise is because what God is promising is not just a better covenant, but a better son. He's promising a better son. Hopefully by the time we end this passage today, we will understand how he is saying that and and really what that means. So let's jump in because the son fails. There is a second son to be raised up that prevails. And I'm going to focus on two sons here, Israel and the son of David. Okay. Israel and the son of David. And so as we start, I just want to reestablish this fact that first, number one there in your notes, Israel was God's son. Israel was God's son. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, states this clearly. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, I will indeed kill your son, your firstborn. And you see, really, this son language is repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. And you'll see it there on the screens. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or shave the front of your head for the dead. Good words to live by, I guess. Um, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And we can see um, a couple of really important truths related to this idea of sonship. First of all, and this is letter A there in your notes. First, Israel's sonship, it denotes this special relationship with God. By virtue of the Mosaic covenant. Israel's sonship denotes their special relationship with God and it's by virtue of the Mosaic covenant. You see God chose them. He brought them to Sinai and he formalized this father-son relationship with them by way of covenant. We've used this imagery of marriage really to explain what we what we see there transpiring on Mount Sinai in this covenant ceremony, but it would be equally appropriate to say that what's happening is also a, an adoption ceremony. All right, the Lord brought Israel to himself through, and through covenant established this father-son relationship so that Israel, uh, Israel would become the son of God in a similar sense that Adam was the son of God. Meant to bear the image of God in a broken and fallen world. Israel was a kingdom of priests bearing the image of God and playing mediator between God and the nations. This, and this leads really to a second critical truth that we need to see in this passage. And that's letter B there in your notes. Uh, this is that Israel's sonship is representative. This is a representative sonship. So what does that mean? It means really um, that this is a representative relationship. It's inseparable from this concept of image and likeness of God. The son of God bears the image of God so that all the earth might know God through the son, right? Um, for example, when Moses reminds Israel that they are sons of God in Deuteronomy 14, he does so in order to support the command. So they are not, like to, be, they are not to be like the other nations. The sons of God are priests of God and they represent God to the world and, and the world to God. In other words, they serve as mediators, mediators of the blessing of God. As God continues his mission of reconciling the world to himself. Remember, that's always the end game. So as Israel, Israel as God, as God's son communicates this same idea. Think of it this way. Just as Israel had a a priest who mediated the relationship between God and his people. So also Israel as a whole nation was meant to be a priest to the world. Right? Notice that it is a kingdom of priests. Kingship was also to function the same way. From the beginning with Adam, Israel was to exercise kingship to rule, not only in the promised land, but as they extended the kingdom of God throughout the, throughout the earth. Israel, the son, was to cause God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven bringing all people to the obedience of faith for the sake of God's name among the nations. And so they were God's son. So kingly priests or priestly kings offer reconciliation and ministering the kingdom of heaven on earth. So all the earth might know the true and living God. Or at least they were supposed to, right? As well as we know well already, the son, Israel, fails just like the son, Adam, did, right? The new Adam and the new garden fares no better than the first. So let me make this comment before, I, before we move on. And really, this is, this is letter C there in your notes. This reference to sonship that we're talking about here, it is rare in the scriptures. You know, a lot of times when we point out a word to you or a phrase, we, we show you, well, here's all the other places we see in the scriptures. Well, this is this is not something that we see all over the place. It's actually very rare. So um, also when we read it here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is unique. Sons of God, uh, at least to this point in redemptive history, sons of God, the phrase has been used a couple of times in ambiguous ways in places like Genesis 6, right? The sons of God looked upon the daughters of men, um, where the context is much different. But the This title in 2 Samuel 7 hasn't really been used directly to refer to one seed. Israel alone had been called God's son in the way we see it used in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And the reason I emphasize this, the reason I want to draw this to your attention, is because if we don't understand this, we're going to miss a point that we could really easily miss. This is a promise given to David that actually rivals that moment back on Sinai when Moses received the covenant of the law. Okay? This promise that, that God gives to David actually rivals the Sinai event in regards to its impact on the rest of redemptive history. Like Pastor Cody's been saying, really this is, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. And we're, we're beginning to see why, right? Okay, so there's a sense in which 2 Samuel 7 is, 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 is so important because it's God responding to the failure of the sons of God. Israel and that Sinai covenant. And so that leads us to point number two in your notes. Number two, Israel was what? An unfaithful son. Israel was an unfaithful son. Just like Adam before him, he rejects his role. He distorts the image that his father has, uh, or he distorts the image of his father in the world. As the world looks at this son, they see the world. They don't see the father. Instead, they see another nation, just like all the other nations, serving all the gods of the nations and reflecting the sin and ungodliness of the sons of men. And maybe... Maybe it would be helpful if I put it this way. Israel could never have said to anyone, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because that's what they were intended to do, right? That in looking at the Son of God, they would see God himself. Right? Neither Adam nor Israel can say that. Not truthfully. Right? Right? They did not share his character, his values, his justice, his loving kindness in the world. They were not the salt to the earth. They were not the light of the world. They were new sons, but they were following the old ways of disobedience and unbelief. So what does God do? In the books of Samuel, we have seen God call David to himself. And where we've seen David... In this, we've seen David go into exile and out of exile. And now we hear God's granting David a promise that his seed would establish a kingdom forever. And so what does God do then? What does God do next? God is promising a new, and this is point number three in your notes, that God is promising a new and better son. He's promising a new son. And better son, this is how we should interpret Second Samuel seven and and the promise given to David. Okay, Israel is, has rejected God's sonship, and they will inevitably be exiled from the garden. Right, the garden of the promised land. Uh, The covenant that has uh, been made with them will inevitably lead to their expulsion from the garden just like the first Adam. Isn't it so cool that we see these themes repeated over and over again? This is why we need the Old Testament, friends. Um, So, uh, where was I? So, 1 Samuel sets us up for this fact, opening with the priest of the Lord, polluting his sacrifices, and his household being destroyed. Remember Eli? Right? So, Um, then Israel asks and receives or asks for and receives a king like the other nations, right? They said, you're old and your sons Samuel, they're not doing like they're supposed to. Give us a king that'll go in and out before us and fight our battles, right? So they ask for a king and they get that king. That's just like the other nations. At which time the Lord makes it clear that since the day he took them out of Egypt, they did what? They served other gods. Clearly breaking and transgressing the covenant that he made with them. All of this screams for a resolution. All of it begs God, please bring something better. So we move into 2 Samuel, and we think really everything's starting to look better, right? But consider the backdrop to David's rise it's chaos. War. It's civil war. I mean, we have scenes like Joab and Abner, 12 brothers killing 12 brothers. All of this, again, screams out for a resolution because what the current situation is not working. And that's what I would argue this covenant actually gives. God. As he has always purposed to do, he brings resolution in this promise. So there in number, th- in number three, letter A, I want you to see the Davidic covenant gives the resolution. It gives the resolution by securing a better promise. It gives the resolution by securing a better promise. It gives the resolution by promising a better son who will enact a better covenant on better promises. And 2 Samuel 7, Daniel, or David rather, plays a familiar role. David is depicted as the new Abraham. Do you see all these pictures folding in on each other now? The language of the Abrahamic covenant is clear and obvious. David is the recipient of that promise. That promise that was first declared back to Abraham in Genesis 12 right? David's name will be made great, according to 2 Samuel 7. Um, after, and then after David lies down with his fathers, the Lord will raise up his offspring after him. Land, seed, blessing. They're, and they're all here in, cha- in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So David joins Abraham as the recipient of a promised seed that will bring blessings to the, earth, to the end of the earth. But maybe more importantly, David is also a a new Moses. References to Exodus and Sinai events are all obvious here in 2 Samuel 7 as well. Referenced here explicitly, David is referred to as the exact title and expression that the Lord used to refer to Moses. Okay? In fact, right, what he says, my servant Moses is now my servant David. In fact, I think it's worth mentioning that in chapter 7, there is a promise of a son. But when David responds, he is well aware that he is not a son. he is a servant. That's how he refers to himself uh, close to 10 times here. He says, uh, there's your servant, your servant, your servant, Lord. So that what brackets the promise of a son is actually my servant, David, my servant, David. And David responds, your servant, your servant, your servant. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the son. He and here is the point of all that. David's son then, if we're tracing the right thread, he will be the new Israel. And that's the next point there. Letter B, David's son will be a new Israel. David's son will be a new Israel in the sense of that prophet, priest, and king covenant headship that was meant to bring blessings to the end of the earth. That's what we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, the immediate result of that, the, the immediate result of that covenant is a creating of a dynasty, right? The Davidic dynasty. So that uh, David has a son who reigns in Israel for close to 400 years. David's sons will reign over Israel, not long, obviously. But, and then the kingdom will be divided. And then they will reign over Judea until the 6th century B.C. As I pointed out, as, as Pastor Cody pointed out last week, even when David's sons commit iniquity, he disciplines them with a rod of men, but he does not move or remove his steadfast love from them. That's the immediate result of this covenant made with David, but it's not the fulfillment. I want you to see that. There is an immediate result, right? There is a near, and then there is a far and full fulfillment here, Okay? The language of verse 14 that we read earlier, it begs for a particular specific son, a particular specific son who will establish a new relationship, bringing reconciliation and rest to the ends of the earth. This is not a son. There's not a son of David from, from chapter seven of second Samuel to the end of the old Testament that fulfills this, right? Right? It's just like Genesis again, right? This guy guy rose up, he ruled, he lived, and he died. This guy rose up, he ruled, he lived, and then he died, right? Nobody can make this claim. Nobody can fulfill what God is promising here uh, in its fullness in 2 Samuel chapter 7, okay? But I want you to see this. The fulfillment of this promise, uh, the promise in this covenant becomes preeminently it comes preeminently through Christ and so then this promise becomes a light in a very dark place for Israel because as we see from here um, things begin to decline for Israel and they decline very rapidly things keep going from bad to worse until finally they are removed they are removed from the land and so here, what we see, these promises about a specific seed, a specific son, will be the hope that, that keeps Israel going. This is the hope for the people of God. So 2 Samuel 7 is actually a provision for the people of God as they endure this onslaught of foreign nations they see their nation first divided then eventually exiled the first the northern kingdom then the southern kingdom is destroyed then we um then throughout this we see this pointing forward to a day where the tent of david or the tabernacle of of david will be re-erected will be built up again where it had failed and the blessings of God will flow forth to the ends of the earth. So here's, here's what I actually want to do from this point. Uh, we've tried to establish here that, that Israel was the son. And as we encounter them here in 2 Samuel, um, they are still the son, right? But here promised is that there will be another son that will come. And will come after them. And that promise is carried forward throughout the Old Testament in all sorts of ways. So... That brings us to letter C, right? an Old Testament now, <laughs> an Old Testament montage of the promise of the better son. When I think of montage, it makes me think back to like 80s action movies. think of Rocky, like running across like Siberia, like punching things and just, and like uh, hearts on fire is is playing in the background you just you want to get up and go hit something you know um but it's like just quick cuts like looking here and there and everywhere and that's what it is here i I want us to see a montage of promises about the coming this coming better sun. okay so this really would be just kind of the greatest hits the ones that are the the most clear the ones we can look to most directly and see oh yeah that's exactly what he's talking about psalm 2 Psalm 2 would be the top of the charts, really. Right? So I want you to see this. You can't really leave it off. Uh, it says so there in Psalm 2, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does that sound like Hebrews to anybody? Ask, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession, right? Not to, not, not to us, but to the son. Do you see that? This is... This is the the crowning of the king. And he says, ask of me, this son who is crowned king, and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance. Um, Now, therefore, be wise O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled, but a little blessed are those who put their trust in him. Right? That's not talking about a group of people. That's talking about a specific son who has been crowned king. Right? Psalm 1 and 2 really serve as the gateway to the rest of the psalms. So one of the primary motifs of the psalms then is the son of David. You see that here, right? So the son is going to bring peace. But here's the thing. You read these passages and it doesn't really sound like peace, does it? It sounds more like war, right? Actually, it's the last war that will bring about eternal peace. The rest of this, uh, the rest that this earth and, these, and God's people are longing for. Now, in Isaiah 9, here's what you have to appreciate. This comes where in Isaiah? The son of David has just played the part of the unfaithful son, right? We see that. This, that Mary when, said, when they're unfaithful, I will punish them with the rod of men, and with the, the blows of men. So, the king, as the covenant representative here, has sinned, right? Um... The the son of David has played the part of the unfaithful son. He does not trust in his father, but instead he goes calling on the king of Assyria as his father as he sends to him for help in the midst of battle. This is God's response to that situation. There is a judgment coming upon them immediately, yet he follows it up with these beautiful words, Isaiah 11. Uh, Judah's going into exile, yet out of... Sorry, did I miss that? Oops. There we go. Thank you. Sorry. Um, so in the midst as we see these beautiful words. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name. Or in the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, and to order it establish establishment with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Okay? Isaiah chapter 11. Judah is going into exile now. Yet out of that stump of the tree that's been cut off will come the son of David who will accomplish everything the Lord promised from Genesis 1 all the way through the rest of scripture there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots Whew, that's good don't you see this is the answer we meet every single week we go over this and we leave here and we watch the news and we think this is so terrible everything's so terrible how is this going to end? It doesn't look good. And yet, we see it right here. And praise God, it's not hard to see. Isn't that good news? We just have to look. And so with that, the way this is going to work out, it's not going to work out because of some election. It's not going to work out because of some governmental system or some financial system. It's not going to happen because of uh, what this uh, scientist says or that scientist says. It's coming from a king. And you don't even have to vote for him, friends. He's already king, He's king because he created everything that exists. He owns everything he created and he's king over everything he owns. And so he is ruling and reigning now and he is coming soon to make all things right. He will make all things new. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, who uh, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him. Praise God, we're Gentiles, right? We get to be in on this too. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. That day, friends, has already dawned. And one since there is a day coming where Jesus will return and remove the cause of all sin and all lawbreakers from the earth. But that day is already broken forth into this present evil age. We live in this time again, like we've said so many times, of already and not yet. We live in light of that, of that, that future coming now. And it's what empowers us to do good in the face of evil. And hear me, friends. If that's not impressed upon your mind and your heart, when you experience evil, you will not have anything else to meet that with but evil. Let me say that again. We live in light of the fact that Christ has come, the kingdom has been inaugurated, but the king is coming to consummate his kingdom. We live in light of that now in this already and not yet. It must be impressed upon our minds and hearts that we have a king who has come, who has secured our salvation, and he's coming back for us. If that is not pressed upon your mind and heart, if you're not living in light of that already and not yet reality, when you experience evil in this life, you have no other resources to meet that evil with other than evil. This is what we see in Judges, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, that should not be us. We have the word. We have the spirit teaching the word to us. We live in light of a king who is coming. And we know that he's coming because he rose from the dead. Right? This is what Paul said in Acts 17. He is coming again to judge and God has made us certain of this fact because he he raised that man from the dead. He is the first fruits of a better harvest that's coming. We must live in light of that. Hosea 1. Hosea 1 is next. Hosea doesn't mention at the outset the son of David. But you know what he does mention? He mentions those who used to be God's son. But are no longer his son. But then there is a glorious promise. In chapter 1 verse 10 of Hosea. It says in the place where it was said to them. You are not my people. There shall be said to them. You are sons of the living God. You have God's people who have. Failed in being God's son. They have been cut off. And yet they're also, we also see this beautiful restoration. You will be my sons again. You will be cast out. But then you'll be brought in when the true son of David, the true Israel comes and brings many sons to glory. Let's go to Amos chapter 9. Amos Amos 9 says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Right? We talked about the tent of David. The tabernacle of David that had fallen and failed. Right? He says... I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing? My point is, and this really is just the greatest hits, right? This is; These are the most obvious ones. This list, though, is extensive. It's extensive. Everywhere. This is what keeps the whole redemptive story moving forward throughout the Bible. It's not a return to Sinai because goodness knows that was attempted, right? They come back from the exile and they say, Let's build the temple. Let's build the walls. Let's set up the sacrificial system again. We can do it better now. They even have a a covenant ceremony. We're going to keep the covenant now. We've learned our lesson. And by the end of Nehemiah, just like we talked about on Wednesday night, what happens? They're doing the same things again. The temple, and and friends, from the time the temple was reconstructed after the Babylonian exile, that temple was never filled with the presence of the Lord until Jesus walks in in the New Testament. So back to Amos. And let's see if this reminds you of a new garden in verse 13. It says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Where the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes him who sows seed. And the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. And hills and all the hills shall flow with it. Do you see this? It's a new garden. Human flourishing. Fruitfulness. Rest. Land. Seed. And blessing. The fulfillment of the promise of the covenants. So what are we waiting for? We are waiting for the son of David. Zechariah 13 verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. There is so much here in Zechariah. And I I would like to challenge you. We have two, two things of homework this week, right? Go home and call somebody, Right? Keep up this this bond of friendship and fellowship that we have in Christ. Yes. But secondly, I want you to go home and read Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. It's beautiful. Here's what I want us to understand. As I'm thinking through this, there there is this longing for the son of David who would bring the fulfillment of the promise given, not just for Israel, but for the nations. Now, in the New Testament, he's come So how does the New Testament open? Matthew 1, 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who is Jesus? He is the son of David, the fulfillment of that promise. All those promises, all those prophecies we just read, as soon as you open up the New Testament, it's there. It's right there. First statement, boom. Just in case you were asleep. Everything you were going to read from Matthew 1 1, it's already there back in the Old Testament. In some form or fashion. Right? Yes, we're going to gain clarification. We're going to gain understanding. We're going to what was concealed in the old is now revealed as we see um, as, we, as we see the Son of David's life, ministry, death, resurrection, and the sending out of his apostles to build the church. So if you're wondering what I'm saying is, is Jesus the new Israel? You're absolutely right. Jesus is the new Israel. Right? Go to Matthew 2. He's the son of David. Clearly stated there. And I don't think anybody's going to argue that. Matthew 2.15, this is where Jesus' family is is going to take him to Egypt. Then this is said, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through his prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son that's from hosea 11 here's here's what's crazy is that in the context of hosea 11 this is clearly looking retrospectively at actual israel this isn't a prophecy looking forward saying someday i will call my son out of egypt in hosea it's clearly being it's clearly looking back out of egypt i called my son which son israel So Matthew actually says that this this was fulfilled when Jesus was called out of Egypt. And you could really look at it one of two ways. Either when the time came and Herod had died and then Jesus came back uh, with his family came back out of Egypt. Or at the point where Jesus and his family are being brought out of Israel. And that Israel is being called like Egypt. Because it's a land of idolatry where Herod serving Rome rather than serving God puts all the children under the age of two to death. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Pharaoh, right? Either way, this is pointing towards Jesus as the true and better son. He is the true and better prophet, priest, and king. He is the perfect image bearer. He is the only one that could ever say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So what does that mean? I'm just going to cut to the chase as our application for today. Everything that matters eternally depends entirely on your relationship then with Jesus, the son of David. Everything. Just like Psalm 2 says, either you kiss the son or you'll perish. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether you're rich, powerful, tall doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you're the most ignorant, impoverished, debased human being. What matters at the end of the day is have you surrendered to the son? Have you said to him, I have nothing like the the tax collector in the temple? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you laid down your weapons? Have you surrendered your entire life that by faith in Jesus Christ you may actually live? You can trust him entirely and completely for your full salvation, knowing that he left absolutely nothing undone. You can serve and love him. And what is the first thing this new Israel does after the baptismal waters there in the river of Jordan? He heads into the wilderness to be tested. And where Israel failed, where Adam failed, Jesus, the true and better son, prevails. He takes to himself the scriptures from Deuteronomy. His word, by the way, uses it in context, defeats the devil, and he emerges victorious. And he proclaims as he leaves the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. He's already passed the test. And then he starts proclaiming the gospel. Right, We have his ministry recorded for us in the four Gospels. Then he nears the final test, the the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's preparing for the final test, he will choose to do the Father's will. When the Father's will means for him to drink from the cup of God's wrath that has been stored up for God's people. He drinks the cup. He passes the cup the test. And after the resurrection, Jesus' apostles are sent forth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's their message? If you look at Acts 2, what does Peter spend most of his time on? The, the, the fact that Jesus is the son of David. He is the right king. Same thing that Paul's first gospel proclamation in Acts chapter 13. The emphasis is the same. There are so many, so many places we could go, but I Let's just skip to the end, okay? Let's go to Revelation. Revelation, um, then we see 2 Samuel 7 could not be more central for us in understanding who this son is. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, it says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Translation, Jesus has done it. That's the point of Revelation. Revelation was written to a church that was being just destroyed by persecution and by corruption from within. Our perspective is chaos as well. Our perspective is things are out of control. Our perspective is not true. In reality, the truth is you have to constantly challenge yourself with this truth that is coming forth from the word. Christ has done it. And that's what John wrote to the church. Hold on. Cling to his promises. Christ has prevailed. He has offered the once for all sacrifice, bringing many sons to glory. And that's where it ends. The last words of Jesus in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 16, bring that up there on the screen. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Isn't that incredible? That those are the last words that Jesus speaks to the church. So then what does the spirit say? What does the bride say? Come. It's an invitation. This morning, hear the invitation. Kiss the son. Not me. But kiss the son. Come to Jesus. Kiss the son while there's still time. Lay down your weapons and surrender to him while there's still time. The son came once to deal with our sin and he will return again to judge and to make all things right and to make all things new. In conclusion, 2 Samuel is the explicit promise. The explicit promise that God will fulfill his promise through the son of David who will establish the new covenant. The first son failed. But the second son is promised, a, a new son, a son who will, not, who will not fail. In fact, he will prevail. God is far more faithful than we think. So our confidence in him should be much more than it is. After all, if God did not spare his own son from us, how much more will he give us with Christ all good things? Everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So let us trust and follow him. Let us know and love him. Let us praise and proclaim the son of David, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father. Lord, you have fulfilled what you promised us. You promised the son of David and he has come. You sent your only begotten son that he might take on our flesh and blood in order to fulfill the law on our behalf. To receive in himself the consequence for all our law breaking. Father, we thank you that we have the son. That he has brought many sons to glory. Would you help us now to trust him? To walk in light of his glory and reflect that light in the world that is so broken and dark and twisted and perverted. Father, would you make us faithful in this calling we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.